are so many uh, potential lessons that we can draw from Kollontai and her life. She was a, uh, a revolutionary, a Bolshevik, also sometimes a Menshevik, um, but ultimately a Bolshevik. Uh, she was a leader of struggle during the Russian Revolution. Um, she was on the Central Committee of the, of, the, um, of the Bolsheviks. She was, you know, right in the thick of things during, um, during the October Revo- Revolution. She was a, um, a commissar um, after the October Revolution um, for, for social welfare. Um, she helped kind of in the, in the attempts to construct a socialist society. But more than that, she's just for anybody, um, maybe women in particular, but for anybody who sees themselves as a revolutionary, she's such an inspiration um, for the, the kind of radical ideas, the insistent, insistent politics that oppression is political and that we need to take oppression um, seriously. And that as organised revolutionaries, we, we particularly need to take oppression seriously, put it front and centre of our, of our struggle and do what it takes to, to fight around that. So, so many things to, um, to pick over in her life and writing, but what I thought I would focus on in this talk is sex, love and relationships. Um, and I, I think that's a useful point to start for us because I think if we, if we look back over the last year in Australia, in Australian politics, but, you know, the last few years um, of the Me Too movement, for so many, the question of um, relationships sexual relationships going terribly, terribly wrong is the way that sexism presents itself in our lives. Um, Even though, you know, and and as socialists, we often do talk about the ruling class and the exploitation of women in the workplace. We talk about the family and those things are connected to uh, the kind of relationships we have and and sexual harassment, rape, um, etc. I think that for a lot of people, the connection between those things isn't necessarily clear because, you know, the discrimination, the harassment, the, the very painful um, kind of crises and oppression that we are, we are experiencing, that women in particular are experiencing, doesn't necessarily present itself directly at the hands, uh, by the hands of the ruling class. It's our colleagues or our comrades or people that we go to school with and so on who are, who are the perpetrators of that, um, of that oppression or the, or the agents of that oppression. And so, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have, you know, a class content immediately to it. Um, when we think about Brittany Higgins, Grace Tame um, and Chanel, and I, I've, I guess I've been thinking particularly about Chanel Contos, the woman who created the petition about the rape and harassment that young high school students have been experiencing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people might initially have dismissed it as something that particularly um, rich girls were experiencing. Maybe they, that I, in fact, I know that there were a lot of people who were kind of like, well, this is something that's happening in private schools, so we don't you know, need to talk about it as a class issue, but very quickly there were kids at public schools who were reporting really disturbing um, instances of um, rape um, and harassment at the hands of their classmates. So, you know, when, when that kind of crisis appeared um, or, or pushed itself onto the agenda of Australian politics last year, part of the solution, and we talked about, that, about this in Last Keep Left, was school students demanding, and Chanel Contos in particular, um, demanding that 
part of the education that young women and young people want is how to have good, healthy sexual relationships and intimate relationships. And this was the demand about consent workshops and consent, proper consent education in school. And that has actually been mandated now in every single, not just um, public, but all, all high schools. In fact, all schools from um, kindergarten through to year 10, it's mandatory um, to be taught about um, respectful relationships and consent in one way or another. But since then, and even before then, actually, uh, students have been reporting how appalling this education is. It's either the, the kind of crap, crappy uh, innuendo and um, bizarre metaphors that we saw with the, um, the taco and the milkshake debacle that happened last year, or more insipid sort of stuff about decision-making trees and, you know, name your values and put your values in a building block situation and then you know you think about somebody else who matches your building blocks really kind of you know it doesn't touch the surface of what people want which is to know how do I deal with rejection how do I deal with jealousy how do I how do I communicate what I want when I'm having sex with somebody how do I even know what I want when I'm having sex with somebody and how do I deal with you know, wanting to express myself when as soon as I start to do that, I feel devalued. You know, these are the kinds of things that people are talking about very openly as wanting an answer to and actually expecting that, you know, somebody in society give an answer to these things because they're what we want out of life. Luckily, you know, for us and for um, the students of the working class today, Alexandra Kollontai wrote about this. Um, she spoke and theorised about this question at, at very great length, over and over and over again. And she insisted that um, sex, relationships and love were political and that um, they were a political problem that communists had to acknowledge, they had to discuss, they had to take seriously. Um, and she was disparaging of the idea that... Um, you know, these are private things that should be resolved in people's bedrooms. She said, this is, this is a bourgeois idea. The, the idea of that privacy is a bourgeois idea and she would have been all for, you know, kind of smashing the secrecy and shame that... Um, in fact, she was, she was all for the, um, smashing that secrecy and shame. But she was also... Because there were com communists at the time and Bolsheviks who, who were right from, you know, um, the 1905 revolution right through to... Um, the 1920s after the October Revolution um, who were saying, like, just, just you know, hold, hold up on all this sex talk and we'll deal with it after, you know, we've sorted out the economic base of society and, you know, just, just hold your horses, we'll deal with this later. Or they said, you know, you know the only... This, this is um, paraphrasing what some communists kind of put it as, like, uh, this is a problem that only bourgeois women have... Um, the time to think about working class women, working class men, they're not, not particularly concerned with these issues. They've got, you know, other far more pressing matters to talk about. And she said, no, there is no defence, no bolt against sexual conflict. To imagine that only members of the well-off sections of society are floundering and are in the throes of these problems would be to make a grave mistake. The waves of sexual crisis are sweeping over the threshold of women's homes and creating situations of conflict as acute and as heartfelt as the psychological sufferings of the refined bourgeois world. So she was, you know, very insistent about it. And she, but she said, you know, look, and this is probably... Actually, this was, you know, in the social basis of the women question, which Caitlin talks about on the podcast, really, um, really interesting 
um, essay and, and right through to the 1920s. She says, people, I can see around me, I can see young comrades, I can see people in marriages trying to find their own personal solution to this. I can see everybody is wrestling with this question one way or another, you know, and particularly in the more revolutionary moments. Uh, she said, they're running this way and that way, but getting nowhere. Um, you know, there were wild marriages, marriages in threes, marriages in fours, not to talk of various forms of commercial prostitution. People were trying to get out of the problem of, you know, uh, a set idea of what marriage was and what relationships should be. Um, they were trying to escape the oppressive and kind of claustrophobic standards of the nuclear family and of sexual relationships that predominated the day and form their own solutions to it. And she was saying there is this knot that people are caught in. And before I kind of talk about how she unpicked that knot and how she theorised that we should, we should deal with it, I just want to give you an example of the kind of insight that she had that I think holds today. There are some things, I've, I'll mention them in a second, I'll just read this kind of, this one um, passage that I think really speaks to some of the, some of the psychological um, conundrums and longings that, um, you know, she, she could really be talking about hookup culture today when she she writes um, of, of some of the psychological dimensions of the problems of sex and relationships. We are a people living in the world of property relationships and a world of, of sharp class contradictions and individualistic morality. We still live and think under the heavy hand of an unavoidable loneliness of spirit. Man experiences this loneliness even in towns full of shouting noise and people, even in a crowd of close friends and workmates. Because of this loneliness, men, I think she means here humans, are apt to cling in a predatory and unhealthy way to illusions about finding a soulmate from among members of the opposite sex. They see sly eros as the only means of charming away, if only for a time, the gloom of inescapable loneliness. People have perhaps never in any age felt spiritual loneliness as deeply and persistently as the present time. People have probably never been so depressed and fallen so under the numbing influence of this loneliness. I mean, it's very poetic kind of capturing of what is very, I think a lot of us could relate to that feeling that she's describing and saying is actually never, you know, she was talking in the 1920s there, but I think, you know, pandemic loneliness and the way that people talk about the, um, and, and people do talk about the epidemic of loneliness today and the attempts, all of our attempts to get out of it are very, very familiar, but come to crisis because of inequality in relationships and other things, which um, Colantai and I'll talk about in a moment. I just wanted to have one caveat before I do go on there, though, which is one, well, two things that I think are kind of peculiarly missing in Colantai's writing um, and discussions around this time. One is about queer relationships. She, I mean, she, she says a lot about non-monogamy, for example, and, and marriages of three or four people, which, I'm, you know, necessarily suggests something about um, queerness. Uh, but despite the fact that she literally had gay best friends, you know, while she was in exile, she had really, you know, she, she was in um, milieus that were, you know, um, gay relationships were not unusual. And it definitely in the 1905 relationship, the, uh, relationship, revolution, uh, there was, you know, there was a flourishing of, of, of um, or apparently a flourishing of, um, of queer culture of a kind. Um, she doesn't ever talk about that and talk about the oppression of that kind of sexuality. She doesn't talk about trans people. Um, you know, even in her kind of backlog of histories through time, it's not, it's not a lot there. 
And I, you know, I think it's a disappoint, disappointing oversight on her part. But nonetheless, I think she still has the keys to unlock um, what is um, what what applies, I think, to um, the oppression of of queer people as well. And one other oversight, which I really can't get my head around, maybe other comrades have thoughts about this, is that she doesn't talk a lot about um, contraception. And, um, you know, we know, like, her biographer, Kathy Porter, talks a lot about her having these conversations with Clara Zetkin in Germany, where, you know, the working class and the, um, has a bit more access to contraception than they did in the Russian working class. And so she, you know, she's really trying to get her head around it herself for her own purposes, but it doesn't really um, occur to her as part of the solution or part of the fight for women's liberation in the same way that other, other kind of solutions put, or other, other demands put themselves forward. So I think those are two things that I've, you know, maybe we can throw into the mix later, but don't diminish in any way um, the, the political um, framework that Colantai provides for, um, anyway, for, um, for dealing with what she called the so-called sexual problems. You know, putting those two things aside, what did Colantai have to say about these, um, these issues of sex, love and relationships? Well, firstly, over and over again, she historicises them and she takes the historical materialist approach, which is to say, well, these, you know, things that happen in terms of ideas and, and human relationships have their base in how societies are organised and how society organises production. And she brings sex, love and relationships and marriage into that sphere. She says in um, Make Way for Winged Eros, which I know some comrades have been reading avidly, um, she says, essentially, love is a profoundly social emotion. At all stages of human development, love has, in different forms, it's been, it's true, been an integral part of culture. Even the bourgeoisie who saw love as a private matter was able to channel the expression of love um, into class interests. In all stages of historical development, society has established norms defining when and under what conditions love is legal, that is, corresponds to the interests of the given social collective, and when and under what conditions love is sinful and criminal, that is, it contradicts the tasks of the given society. So she goes through, um, in, in different essays, she kind of picks out different examples. Um, and we, you know, it's kind of the, the Engels tradition. Engels does this. Um, years earlier of saying, look, this is, this is what marriage looked like, this is what relationships look like. The nuclear family presents itself to us in our society as if it's this eternal and universal basic human social organisation, but actually, you know, you look 50 years ago in Russia or you look 100 years ago or you even look, you know, across... Um, you know, across the other side of the world right now and you will find that people are organising themselves in fundamentally different ways and what, you, what they would think of us is, and our sexual morality is, is completely crazy, insane and disgusting. She gives the example of, the, of ancient Greek societies um, who valued love between blood relatives over love for husbands or wives. Um, and friendship and loyalty um, to the Greeks were um, civic virtues, whereas romantic love in the modern sense had no place or was an amusement, a luxury, which citizens who had fulfilled his obligation to the state could afford. She didn't write about it a lot, but, you know, since then we talk about it um, and, and Engels definitely talked about Indigenous and pre-class societies. And, and one example, you know, there are many examples actually of where same-sex relationships, for example, or same-sex sex. You know, there were names for that 
Um, there were, um, that, that was an ordinary practice, but it didn't necessarily accord with, that, with rules around marriage. Um, so I've got one, one example, the Tukuna, one of the largest indigenous groups in, in the Amazon. There's a word to describe a man who has sex with men, uh, another to describe a woman who has sex with other women, but uh, these words about sex are unrelated to the principles of the Tukuna society that organises marriage along clans in rules of exogamies. So um, in Tukuna, to marry well is to marry from another member of the clan that you're supposed to marry into. Um, and it's a matter of indifference whether you marry a man or a woman. So what, yeah, just, just an example of completely different, um, different expectations around um, and different values of love and marriage that are organised in that case around uh, a much more communal and uh, classless society. She talks about feudal society. Feudal society was organised around the defence of um, the noble family. So marriage was a contract according to the interests of the family and any young man, the girl had no rights whatsoever, who chose himself a wife against these interests was severely criticised. In the feudal era, the individual was not supposed to place personal feelings and inclinations above the interests of family, and he who did so sinned. Morality did not demand that love and marriage go hand in hand. They were seen as uh, complete. There was no sort of morality that said you married the person that you love. Peasant families, uh, you know, again, so um, also feudal society, but the bottom end of it, peasant families were held together by economic necessity. Peasant um, families were an economic unit. They were a productive unit. Um, and it, it, the importance there was around production and there was a, a very um, severe economic imperative. So the idea that you would marry for love in those circumstances was kind of hilarious, uh, ridiculous, or just not even entertained. But with bourgeois revolutions, and Kollontai writes about, you know, the Renaissance authors and um, the, the bourgeois intellectuals who fought for and, and defended a different ideal about love under capitalist society or the burgeoning capitalist society. So under capitalism, matters of the heart, the idea of marrying for love and desire, you know, kind of, um, kind of intertangled. So a totally different social order where the self or the individual is elevated ideologically um, and the psychological, sensual and spiritual needs of individuals are recognised. Um, and we get the idea that love conquers all, you know, that love is the, is the idea and, and Engels called it individual sex love. So the idea that sex and love and marriage are fused together and that's kind of the aim of an individual's life. To, to kind of go for that and, you know, happily ever after is kind of the ideology around when you get those three things together and it links up. But it's a completely, like, what, what is interesting with Kollontai, she, she historicises that and she says, this is a new idea, happily ever after in this kind of sense is, is, is novel. It's not an eternal idea. But she says, you know, for, for the new ruling class, so for the bourgeoisie, this, this idea of love, marriage um, and sex all kind of coming together, ultimately uh, it still was hemmed in. It was still a very, very narrow channeled idea of love and, and morality and, around love. And it was directed 
ultimately towards the concentration of capital. So for the new ruling class, it was incredibly important that, you know, that capital didn't escape to illegitimate children, that the family unit, so a man, a woman, and the legitimate children thereof, you know, were held together in a stable unit and for bourgeois families that they were able to kind of inherit uh, their, their next generation and pass on, pass on capital to them. But the working class didn't escape the bourgeois morality of the, of, of the nuclear family. For the working class, the same morality is imp- imposed on us. So the idea of that stability, the idea that this is the unit, you know, that is till death do us part, that th- kind of threatening phrase. It's got to, it's got to stay together or else. Um, so love between, you know, the ideal is a love between a heterosexual couple, which just keeps on going and going and going, and, and it is reproductive. So there are children involved. And of course, the man sees his sense of self-worth in the psychology of the nuclear family as his ability to provide economically for them and for women it's the um it's that she can look after that she can make children and that she can um then look after children and that is the 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 fundamental idea of the nuclear family so love is again we can see marshaled in the services of of the class interests of the time it's it's marshaled into the services of capital Um, you know for the ruling class they get uh, the reproduction of a labor force um, they get a very committed uh, group of people who, who turn away from the collective and turn inwards towards their family. They get, um, you know, a father whose kind of mental stress is, can I cope with, can I pay for, can I provide for these people? My whole sense of ego is going to be destroyed if I can't. And for a woman, it's the selflessness, the like, um, you know, the, the, the total unpaid servitude, the self-effacing kind of psychology that goes along with that. And it doesn't suit us. It really doesn't suit us. And Colin Ty is, is, you know, very, very clear on this. She's, she's down on the nuclear family like no one else is, really. She's just, you know, she, she calls it slavery and servitude and so on. And I think, you know, if just kind of going back to how I started this talk, the, you know, what about the... Um, you know, relationships today that don't necessarily... It's not like high school students who are having sexual relationships are necessarily thinking about, well, is this person going to be a good breadwinner for my future children in 15 years? How does that kind of match? And I think, you know, we have to update the theory because um, Colin Ty is talking about a time where, you know, whether she was talking about contraception or not, there was no contraception available in Tsarist Russia. And so you enter into a sexual relationship with a man and you are thinking about those things very, very um, concretely. But for us, you know, we've had, I guess, uh, a, a bit of an era of women's liberation, sexual, uh, sexual liberation to some extent, gay liberation over the last half century. And we've had... Things like birth control, decriminalisation of homosexuality, no-fault divorce, single parent payments, etc. So, you know, updating our theory a little bit, there is time. We've won some time between, you know, when you're first having sex and uh, the time that you're ending up getting married. But Kolontai wrote about this as well. It doesn't really change the fact that women are so devalued in society and the commercialisation and the valuing of women is ultimately in what she can cash in on on the market of men so you know what what the way that women are valued is in in how much you know in how good their um how good their catch is ultimately on um in 
you know, in marriage terms, but, you know, in, in pale imitation of that earlier on and you're, you're kind of, in our society, practising for that. Or you get the flip side of that, which is a complete commercialisation of sex. It doesn't... It's divested of love and marriage and all the romantic kind of vomituous stuff that we get ad nauseum through rom-coms. You get, you know, WAP or, you know, you get the complete... The, the video, uh, the music video version of... You know, women as as objects in the most crudest and literal form, which is you know, like get out your credit card. I am I am a literal credit card for you to spend on. Like, take me as your sexual lover. What do you think? Sort of thing. It's like it's 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 the total reduction of women to to commodities and to sexual commodities. So you know, the 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 fundamentals. Even though we we've had partial attempts at. Um, and you know, and, and some significant changes. The fundamentals of those dynamics haven't necessarily, or well, haven't changed in under capitalism. And what Colin Ty is talking about it, about a consumer society, an unequal society, and ultimately a society that deeply degrades women. Those are the bedrocks of our relationships, um, whether they have children in them immediately or or not. Once you know, in in the long run. Yeah, I've got to skip forward because I'm running out of time. What is a revolutionary to do? If we, if we have analysed this situation, we've got, we, we, we see that our ideas about relationships are formed by the social basis of society, which degrades us all, um, but particularly women. How does a revolutionary act? Starting from the base up, I mean, Colin Tide talked about, and she was commissar of social welfare, so to some extent she was the kind of like, what does a socialist society look like? Well, I'll tell you, because I'm the commissar of social welfare, you know, under the Soviet Union, it looks like this. And literally she said it, she wrote pamphlets. Like, let me read you a little bit. We have already, this is in the nine, late, maybe 1918, yes, 1918. We have already, we already have... Homes for very small babies, creches, kindergartens, children's colonies. I always wonder what a children's colony looks like. (laughs) Anyway, children's colonies, homes, hospitals, health resorts for sick children, restaurants, free lunches and schools, and uh, free distribution of textbooks, warm clothing and shoes to school children. The worker state aims to support every mother, married or unmarried, while she is suckling her child to establish maternity homes day nurseries and other such facilities in every city and village in order to give women the opportunity to combine work in society with maternity. No one will have their child taken away from them. She was kind of very reassuring about this because it was obviously a concern that the um, the reaction was whipping up. They were like, these communists are going to take away your children. That's what they mean. She said, no one is going to have their child taken away from them, but everything you wish you could do for your child, everything that you can't do under capitalism because you're working or because, you know, in the home you are crushed and claustrophobic, everything that you want from your child, our society is responsible for endowing that child and you. Um, So that pressure that you have on you as a woman to, you know, all, all of the pressures, I won't go into it, but all of those pressures, let us relieve them from you and whatever role that you want to have in your child's life, whether you are a man or a woman, you get to have it. But you do not have to have that crushing responsibility. And I think that was kind of this relieving, relieving message or attempt to relieve women. You know, we've, many, many of us talk about the, the la- centralised laundries, centralised canteens. No one's rushing home in the revolution to cook dinner because somebody is going to going to be organising that, that no one needs to go home and darn socks 
because there will be a central darning institute um, that does that for everybody. Like, those things are, are a social concern and we will take responsibility for them. And that, what does that mean for relationships? Instead of the conjugal slavery of the past, communist society offers women and men free union, which is strong in the comradeship which has inspired it. One of the conditions of, once the conditions of labour have been transposed and the material uh, security of the working woman has increased, and once marriage, the so-called indissoluble marriage, which was at bottom a fraud, has given place to the free and honest union of men and women who are lovers and comrades, prostitution will also disappear. So she had this vision of, like, we do what, like, that, that ideal of love, that ideal of open, honest communication and sex that isn't, like, ground down by the idea of who's going to do the dishes after this, you know, those kind of um, open, loving approaches to other human beings. She was really, she had a lot to say about it and really tried to, um, in some people's minds, in a little bit, like, a little bit too kind of wild and weird, but I think what she was trying to do is say, this is a human concern. Our relationships matter. This motivates people. We want to have good relationships with each other. But to do that, we need to change the social base of society. We need to free women um, so that we can have these, um, these relationships. She had some principles, which I think are great principles. Equality in relationships and, the ma and masculine egoism and the slavish suppression of the female personality should end. Mutual recognition of the rights of the other, of the fact that one does not own the heart and soul of the other, the sense of property engendered by bourgeois culture needs to end. That there should be comradely sensitivity, the ability to listen, understand the inner workings of the loved person instead of try and swallow them whole in your desperate attempt to pin them down as your lover forever. Um, those, those are the principles. But at the same time as she said, these are our ideals, this is what we're fighting for, this is, we want a different kind of love in society. She said, however much we aspire to these things, there, it is no good, and this was particularly a, a point that she really went on about before the revolutions in particular. She said, bourgeois feminists, and she was really hard on the bourgeois feminists in a really delightful way, Bourgeois feminists and anyone who's trying to be a hero about redesigning their own personal relationships are giving you a false hope or giving you a false solution to this tangle of problems. She said, the heroic struggle of individual young women of the bourgeois world who fling down the gauntlet and demand of society the right to dare to love without orders, without chains, um, or to serve as an example. The marriage question, in other words, for these women is solved in their view without, without response, uh, without, sorry, without reference to the external situation. Just let a woman simply dare and the problem of marriage is solved. She was, I'm reading this out, it doesn't really make sense, sorry, now that I've read it out, but she's saying this is kind of actually ridiculous uh, because while maybe it's solved in your head as a bourgeois woman who doesn't need to worry about housework, who doesn't need to worry about um, childcare, who isn't going to work in a factory tomorrow morning, these things actually do concern how we are designing our relationships as working class women. We can't just think them away. Less heroic women shake their heads in distrust. Is it possible? Can an individualist in an individualistic world to ignore the formal marriage contract without damaging the interests of women? Free love introduced consistently into contemporary class society instead of freeing women from the hardships of family life, which, 
would surely shoulder her with a new burden, the task of caring alone and unaided for her children. And she gave the example of men who actually love the idea of free love, like these gentlemen, she calls them the gentlemen, I can't remember what it is, but these are kind of factory owners who are exploiting the idea of free love um, by forcing young women workers in their factories to have sex with them under the you know, under the kind of idea of free love, they have no responsibility to marry these young women and they leave them completely at the um, mercy of then Soviet society with no maternity leave, you know, like just nothing, absolutely um, destitute, um, potentially with children. So that idea that we can solve this problem without dealing with those bigger questions is something that Colin Ty was really, you know, really said, no, this is, this is a fantasy. We need, to, we need these relationships to change. We need to talk about them, but we cannot, you know, we cannot really seriously have this transformation unless we deal with the fundamental class society that we're facing and it's, um, it's appalling oppression of women and the working class in general. So I, I'm going to leave it there because I've gone well over time. I did want to say something about the fact that I will just say this last thing. Okay, so one thing that Colin Ty, I think one of her, her kind of strongest insights, apart from this stuff, was that you can look at women in the working class, and particularly in Tsarist Russia, and just be distraught because they were worked to the bone, their children were dying, you know, their children were literally dying. They were having children on factory floors, and, you know, the infant mortality rate was more than 50% in some areas. Um, it was horrific. And she said, you can look at this and see horror. But you have to have a radical revolutionary imagination and see also at the same time the potential that these women have to transform society because they do have it and to ignore their power, to ignore the fact that they're approaching at that point 40% of the working class and to think that only men are the ones who have the power to transform society, that's crap. These people have that power and doubly they have this incredible incentive to transform their oppression as well and to lose the chains of that oppression. So we need to organise these people. We need to appeal to them on that basis of the potential transformation of society in general. So she had that kind of insight about what our power is and that kind of is her key to these sexual problems that I think we really need to hold on to as well.